I fell in love with it basically when I saw it at Charles Beer's shop this in 2002. I was stumbled upon in the shop to pick up some strings, and they said, "Here, just try this violin for for a minute because it's on its way to Germany to be shown to a collector." And I tried it, and I started shaking. I said, "This is my violin. Like this is, I'm not putting this down." And I played the very same night at the Royal Albert Hall for eight thousand people, uh, playing Bernstein West Side Story and the Serenade, which I played just today. I uh, played it that very night, which is unheard of. I mean, nobody wants to play on a new instrument that they've never played on you know, in an important gig like that at the Albert Hall. But I was so infatuated that I just didn't want to play my other uh, Stradivarius, which I had with a great violin. So, and then from that day on, that's the only violin I played on. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and on Mother's Day in 2018, I traveled to Portland, Oregon to attend a concert by the Oregon Symphony. The featured soloist was violinist Joshua Bell. And following the intermission, while other performers continued with the concert, I met with Mr. Bell in his dressing room for an interview. We talked about his life, his storied Stradivari violin, and his great passion for music. It is May 13th, 2018, Mother's Day, here in Portland, Oregon. And I have the honor to interview Joshua Bell. And you've just finished the uh, first part of a, uh, of a concert with the Oregon Symphony. And we're now listening a little bit in the distance to the second half of the, of the concert. Yes, we're just backstage in my dressing room. I just finished playing uh, the Bernstein Serenade. This is Bern- Leonard Bernstein's uh, 100th year, anniversary of, 100th, uh, of his birth. Hundred years, and so celebrating Bernstein, and uh, and uh, happy to talk to you. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Very odd thing, which I'll just mention very briefly. This building, where I came in the stage door, used to be a shop, a clothing shop, in 1969. Hmm. And I moved to Oregon, and then eventually moved back east. So I wasn't in Oregon very long, and I had a leather shop. Within us, I mean, we could throw a stone as oh, close wow. as it was in the same building. And uh, to come back here and find that out that we'd be... Wow. It was, Almost yeah. To make leather belts and sandals for people. And my biggest customers turned out to be professional wrestlers. One guy came in to get a big belt thing made. And uh, he was so pleased with it, he started bringing all his buddies in. <laughs> they were rather different people. Wow. And people running the shop weren't all that keen to see them coming in, but they were characters, and they all had great stories. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So here I am after all these years. That's <laughs> 1969. <laughs> so tell me where you were born in the year, and uh, a little bit about, I'm really interested in family lore. So any stories about any music that came down through the family, or even legends or mm-hmm. rumors to that effect? Well, I mean, the number one question people ask me is, you know, were your parents musicians? Because music often travels down the family line, and and the profession tends to, you know, musicians tend to want their kids to be in the in the in the uh, business, you might say. Um, but I, I did. My parents were not musicians. I was I was born in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, but Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, but both my parents' music was very a big part of their life, even though they weren't professional musicians. So my father, I had a mixed mixed background as far as uh, ethnicities. From my uh, uh, my my mother was 
from the Russian Jewish line, and my father was an Episcopal priest. So it was an odd uh, when they met, and he he eventually left the priesthood and became a psychotherapist and uh, and married a Jewish wife. So he had a very interesting. Uh, background and then he not only that he went uh, moved to Bloomington to be part of the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research after being a <laughs> being a, uh, a, a Episcopal priest so he's he had many lives but one life that he did not lead that he always wished he did was one that included the violin because he when I was a kid he always had a violin sitting around he'd never taken mm. really taken lessons he just loved the violin and it, uh, my mother says that it, her father's favorite instrument was the violin as well. Um, and uh, so somehow when I was four years old and, and they found me plucking rubber bands on my dresser drawers, I used to collect rubber bands around the house and string them on my little nine-drawer mini dresser drawers thing. And I would open up the drawers and uh, create different tensions and different pitches. And I used to play... Uh, play tunes that I heard my mother playing on the piano, but she was an amateur pianist. So I had a lot of music around, and then my parents said, let's get a violin, and that's how that's how it started. But um, so, uh, but music was always a big part of my life. Um, uh, all my cousins and aunts and uncles, everyone played an instrument. So during, like, holiday times, we would have what we call musicals, and uh, everybody would get up and play their little song. Or, and that was, for me, family was all about um, about music. and uh, So it must have been quite a difference when you'd visit with your mother's family versus your father's family. Different Yeah, they're very, diff- very different. I was, my, my father didn't have as much family as my mother, so I didn't, there wasn't as much, um, as much family, uh, uh, but they were, they, they were, they were very different. My father, fun, uh, before he became a priest, though, he was actually a musician as a child because he was, he went, went away to school at the age of 10, left his family, which is very, I can't imagine. I have a 10 year old and kind of sending away my kid to, away to school. He was sent to Manhattan to go to the cathedral of St. John of the Divine and be a choir boy. And he was, so music was part of his everyday life. So he was a, uh, music was very central, um, to him and on my mother's side, it's funny. You know, I uh, I went to Israel um, to play a concert a couple of years ago. My mother, my mother came with me, and we went to visit the the uh, cemetery of my my great grandfather, who was one of the early settlers um, uh, of the state of, of Israel. I mean, this way before it was called Israel. Um, uh, I, there, he was one of the early people that came um, over there, and we visited his grave, and we saw inscribed in the gravestone that he was a cantor in in the, and we didn't even know that. We thought, isn't that funny? Here, you know, something we didn't even know about my great grandfather. That music was he was a musician, so it was, it was kind of cool to um, to see that. Yeah, and St. John the Divine is one of the legendary acoustic spaces. Uh, Paul Winter Consort recorded an album in there just ah. because of the acoustics. So your father had that experience. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, he used to, he, yeah, and he always, as a kid, he talked to about the Cathedral of St. John of the Divine. And I recently played there last year as a guest of uh, Elton John uh, for his benefit. He had a benefit for his charity, uh, AIDS charity that he's big on, and and uh, asked me to come play a song. It was at the cathedral, and I was thinking, oh, my dad, I wish he were still around. Unfortunately, he died in 2002, so he's not um, not around anymore. But uh, yeah, so, 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 that's, so the violin came into my life at the age of four, and... Uh, and uh, that's where it started. This is an interview about you, not me, but uh, this this uh, 
an hour ago, I was sitting, and because my wife, uh, it's Mother's Day, right. and my two daughters she's with, so she didn't come, but uh, so the seat next to me was empty, and my mother loved music, just was crazy about music, and would take me in to see Leonard Bernstein in the Young People's Concerts, yeah. and I met Aaron Copeland there, and uh, she wasn't a musician either, but that love was there. Hmm. And I felt her presence. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. Oh, you know? Sometimes you feel those people in our family when you're doing something special and it's in a place that was special to them. Hmm. So I understand that, uh, you know, from this and that, that I've read about you, you had a fairly ordinary childhood growing up, but you had a mother who was really helped you and, and decided, you know, in some ways that you would... Uh, you do well at whatever you did. And when you went for music, she was a force in that. Is that a She fair definitely way to say was it? a force. I mean, she, uh, being an amateur musician, and I think, you know, she also was an unfulfilled musician, you might say. You know, um, she went on to have kids and had, you know, and, and she worked as a, as a mental health counselor. But I think music was something she also wishes that she had done. So when you're a parent and you have a chance to kind of live, through your children doing what you wanted to do, I think it became very important to her. So when, and because I took to it um, so strongly, and I and I and I, uh, she really jumped on and really enjoyed that connection. And so she and she was very powerful presence for me, you know, in getting me you know, to practice. She practiced with me. She she and my father both, you know, found the teachers for me that were going to really help me the most and. They were my huge advocates. I think you, it, uh, I can't imagine, you know, some people I know, you know, fought against their parents to try to play the instrument. You know, for me, it was they were really on my side. So I'm very grateful, um, grateful for that. And was there this time where it could have been the piano, it could have been a different instrument? You know, I don't remember um, ever thinking about any other instrument than the violin. I just, because I started when I was four. I never, we always had a piano in the house, of course. My sisters played the piano, my mother play the piano, but I never really felt like I wanted to go and play the piano. For me, the violin was perfect instrument for me. I could take it in my room. I was kind of a shy kid, you know. I, I, it, was, it was small, I could carry it around. I felt like it was uh, the perfect instrument for me. And um, yeah, so so I, I'm not one of those people that wanted to play a million other instruments. It's just The violin has been, you know, it's just a never-ending challenge. I don't feel the need to try to master another one, you know. Mm. But I was into sports and tennis and I was competitive tennis player as a 10 year old and and uh, doing other things but uh, until I met my teacher Joseph Gingold at the age of 12 I started studying with him he was a legendary teacher a student of Isai which is which is pretty awesome for me that I studied with someone who's a student of Isai who's the person who Frank wrote his famous sonata for in 1886, I believe it was, you know, that I was connected directly by this teacher who knew Heifetz and Chrysler, and um, it was pretty uh, amazing. And he's the one that, he also had a Stradivarius violin, which I got to play, you know, for the, as a 12-year-old, that was the first, my first encounter up close with the Stradivarius. And uh, so many, he was really the, the, he was the force that took me to the next level. I mean, the difficulty of this project Anything that really comes at music is music's his own language. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to find the words yeah, to explain true. what these experiences are. But I don't know if you could in any more detail explain that feeling you had when you got to play that first Strad. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Where were you? It was just at his home, his own home? Well, I know. I, was, I used to take lessons 
with Joseph Gingold at uh, the second floor of the music building at Indiana University, which is a very famous music school. Now, the reason I was in Bloomington was because my father was, had taken this job at the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research, which happens to be in Bloomington, Indiana. That's one of the few things Bloomington is famous for. One is their music school. It's probably one of the best in the world. And the Kinsey Institute. So and, so, their, and their folklore program. And their folklore program. Okay, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So no, I mean it's a, it's an amazing little town for fifty thousand inhabitants. Um, so, but uh, I wasn't. We didn't move there for music. So my parents were pleasantly surprised to find this amazing resource there. So Gingold, I went to these lessons um, at the music school uh, at the end of the day, and uh, on Fridays at the end of the week, his teaching week, and we would have these long lessons that we never know when they would end. And um, but he had the Stradivarius. Uh, his was made in uh, 1683. Um, and a, and every once in a while he would say, just here, play a few notes on it, and he would stick it under my chin, and uh, and I just remember that 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 feeling, the the overtones of the instrument, you know, the the ringing of the instrument that um, which is sort of which is sort of the trademark of a Stradivarius, you know, this sort of sweet soprano sounds from the violin which i for me will always be the ideal violin sound because that's what's imprinted there are you know there the guarneries are fantastic violins and a very deep and rich and a different kind of sound which is very appealing in many ways but for me it's always the strad sound that gets me probably because that's what i grew up with and i just i remember feeling that sort of feeling of goosebumps like when you you play it or, or when you're up close listening to it, there's just special quality that's hard to describe that uh, separates it from other any other instrument. It's the, it's a human organic sound, um, and I think that I mean the violin is the most like human voice, um, uh, and and it's it's there's so many similarities, and um, you and I think that's why I love the instrument. Well, the instrument obviously has this association with magic. Now, whether it's real magic or imagined, but people are puzzled by why just a few of these instruments made by a few people should have this special quality. Yeah. And uh, so many people are, have chased after it for generations. It's about enchantment. And uh, how does that really happen in this world of, of mortal beings? It's, it's very hard to describe uh, and very hard to understand. There's, there's never been a perfect explanation uh, given to me. Um, you know, people have pointed to many things, you know, from the climate to the varnish to the, the time period. And it's probably a little bit of all of those things. It's the expertise of these makers at that time. It was really the peak of the scientific, in a way, I would say they were acousticians, these guys that they understood every little carving out of a wood at any point, you know, would change the balance and the way it would sound. Like, they, I think they really understood it. It wasn't, it was not a random magical thing from that they lucked upon. I think they were really incredibly skillful and some of their secrets may have been lost over the years. But uh, I don't really know what it is. Of course, you will find people today saying that they've done experiments where where it's nobody can tell the difference for between the Stradivarius. They, in fact, they choose the modern instrument over the Strad and blind tests and things like that, which is basically you're, if you subscribe to that, you're basically saying that every great violinist over the last two hundred years is, was full of crap because that they needed to have a Stradivarius. That that there was it was just 
there for the name or something like that, which is so not true. What these blind tests don't take into account is what the instrument does to the player. It it it's there's a it opens up your palette of colors. If you were a painter, it would be like you're presenting a painter with a with a palette that has a thousand colors instead of three, you know, and and uh, and and it allows you to make music in a different way. But these are things you can't detect when you play a scale on one and then a scale on another for somebody for ten seconds in a hall and say which one sounds better. And that's that's what they people don't understand when they see. In fact, a Stradivarius is more difficult to play in many ways. It's um, I sometimes I'm a golfer, so I sometimes relate it to like if you ever play golf and you play with these clubs that are meant for amateurs um, that are and then you try to use one of these golf clubs that the the blades that these these uh, pros use they're so much more difficult to hit but if you know how to use them you can finesse the sod in ways that you can't with these these forgiving clubs that, that we amateurs play so if you were to give an amateur say which one do you think is a better club they'd say well of course the these other these other ones, you know, but uh, someone if you know how to use a strat, or if you're not, it's the same same way. Um, then you, it allows you can really use it to your advantage. But it, it would it wouldn't do any good to someone who's who doesn't know how to make the most of it. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> you pick up a violin and and just some of them. I have a couple now that took such different world to play mm-hmm. them than instruments I'd played for years before that. The uh, and just talking about the uh, the parallel with uh, golf clubs, Frank Allman. We interviewed Frank and uh, about, of course, everything that happened to him with the robbery of the Lipinski right. and its recovery, but also about his journey as a musician. And uh, at uh, at one point in the interview, we were talking about the fact that the violin had been stolen, and I mentioned, uh, well, what about the bows? And he said, oh, yeah, the bows. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't talk about it because the Stradivari was worth $5 uh, million. You know, the money the is... Bows are, the bows are, uh, in a way, just as important. I mean, um, maybe not quite as expensive, although uh, some of the bows, uh, that I, a couple of bows I have are up are approaching here in, in 2018. They're approaching a half a million dollars in value for one bow, which is a lot of money. A lot of money. And there, there's an... I mean, the, the we talk about the magic of the Strads and how is it that they made these. I think the story of Tourt, Francois Tourt, uh, is in a way almost an, a more unbelievable story because he, the bow had been evolving for many years, but Francois Tourt uh, was one of the, basically the first uh, or among right at that time to change the whole shape of the bow um, from. From the from the more arcing over overarching thing, which was used for baroque bow, and changing it to uh, to curving the opposite direction, um, and this allowed this allowed a technique to do to do many things uh, on the violin that you couldn't uh, couldn't do before. And it was, but the fact that he was really the first to do this, and his bows today are the ones we all. Want. They're the better than any other bows. They sound better. They're, there's um, how is that possible? You think the first person, like in every other thing, the first iPhone is ne- you know it is not going to be the best iPhone. There's going to be a million generations. To, you know they keeps getting better. So that's I think that's an amazing amazing thing. And and what makes a tort bow? There's it's the sound. Um, uh, again, it's the wood. The where he sourced the wood and. That's part of it, but the the sound you get 
between two different bows and when I put the tort on the on the strings it's a much fatter ringier sound that uh, that I've never seen out of a uh, modern I've seen loud bows but it's not ones that have this chocolate kind of sound that it can bring out of the violin I don't understand it and I don't I, it's just That's it true. is magic yeah it is magic and uh before we leave Frank Gomez, the reason I brought him up was when we talked about the bows, he said, you know, you spend your life trying to find just the right six iron or seven yeah. iron. <laughs> so, oh, he used the golf analogy. Yeah, too. but he used it for the bow. So yeah. I'm, glad we, I, I'm glad that let us no, in. I mean, the bow is every. I mean, the bow is the is, is all the most of the expression, most of the nuance of sound. And it's like the your breath. I mean, on a violin, the bow is your breath. Mm -hmm. um, the in and out of breathing. If you're a singer, that's every, the bow is all the breathing and all the everything you do over your vocal cords. It's all that's the bow, um, and it's so important. And uh, you're right, we don't talk about that as much. But for us fiddlers, it's something we. I mean, and I love trying bows and looking for bows. And they're a little cheaper, so I can collect a few more. I, I can only I afford one Stradivarius, but I I have three tourts and I have have uh, a couple of Pajos and some um, other bows that I, you know, sort of collecting, which I, which is fun. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that, uh, that phenomena, and I don't either. Uh, I've played with a bow for years on a violin and then suddenly tried some other bows, and every bow is a different, made the violin different. Mm -hmm. I mean, the tone changed. Not only the feel and what you could do, but the very tone changes and you'd wonder how that can be it's just this and, for, and in the classical of, world i mean you know we the, we the repertoire is so varied so some one bow might be perfect for playing mozart I, I tend to stick to one bow find one that that i think i can use in everything but but uh you know one might have a more laser-like sound more clean sound that that works better for for mozart and one if you for tchaikovsky you want a little heavier bore a little for a more romantic a bigger bigger romantic sound um, you know, uh, and one you know for playing Paganini with lots of spiccato and things where the the bow has to be very flexible and pop jump around and do all these tricks. Some of the best sounding bows don't can't do the tricks. <laughs> you know, can't they're not as nimble. And in fact, by nature, because they sound so good, part of part of the nature of a great sounding bow sometimes is that it doesn't have, it doesn't. Uh, respond as fast because it has more give and it has it gives a special sound. so to find one that can do everything is is, is very hard and it kind of goes back to the violin and uh, we interviewed Elmer Olivara and he uh, sort of defined violins as having three basic qualities and maybe not every violin has all three okay fact. I'm and, curious and, what he called it yeah three. he said one would be its tone Okay. All right. Very, pretty important. That's a pretty broad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. One quality, yeah. But okay. he's saying, you know, in, in big terms, okay. one is its responsiveness. Okay. And the other is its ability to project mm -hmm. to the back of the hall or whatever. Wouldn't that know. fall under tone? I don't, not at all, I don't think. And the way he sees that. The way I mean, he sees it, the quality of tone, I guess, yeah, versus the projection. Yeah, he might have a, to a violin that he really loves the tone. But it doesn't really project out to the I back see. of the hall, yeah. especially. That can happen. Yeah. So I, I thought that was an interesting way interesting. to at least break it into basic categories of what violins do. And of course, now in the age of recording technology, somebody like Daryl Angle will say some of the very qualities you want in a concert violin are are counterproductive in a studio where you're using microphones. I think that's 
it's probably very true. Um, I, for me, though, you know, live performance is everything. So I don't think so much in terms of what's going to sound best. And I'll try to adapt the studio to 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 make up for any you know uh, deficiencies or things that I don't like about the sound. Because to me, getting a violin that's, that sounds good in the concert hall is much more important to me. But I've found instruments that have a very mellow, beautiful sound. Uh, that don't work in the concert hall so well, but I can imagine in a studio, maybe they're actually, it's probably a better choice than the Stradivarius. You know, part of what the Stradivarius has is this, this these spinning overtones that, that that's what projects to the back of the hall. You can play pianissimo, very soft, and it's this, in this, the spinning overtones somehow make the way they travel to the back of the hall. Um, but that very same thing, if it's up right next to a microphone, can actually be be too much. You might get a little too much high high end. I I've, I find myself asking the engineers to turn off, turn down the high end, take off the high end when they have a mic up close because that's the stuff that sends it to the audience. Um, I mean, if you listen to Pavarotti or you know one of the great singers, they have you know it's that those high overtones. Even when they're singing lower, it's the overtones, the higher end. Um, that you're hearing, you don't consciously hear them. You just, uh, it just sounds louder. But if you if you really were to close your eyes and listen, you would suddenly, if you really knew how to pay attention, you'd hear not just the, the main note that he's singing, you'd hear several different overtones, an octave above and a fifth above. And now they're all ringing. And those are the things that's that why he can sing at the Met and you can um, you can hear in the back of the, the big dry hall of the Metropolitan Opera. Um, but up close, it might be kind of, it might be overwhelming. Yeah, Daryl went to the Violin Society of America, uh, one of their annual conventions, and talked to the violin makers uh, to try to talk them into making violins that didn't project as much hmm. or to consider that once in a while. It makes Which I sense. That was interesting, you know. You know, I mean, the kind of, you know, bro- uh, um, Broadway singers versus opera singers, you know, if you, these days we have the, the microphones, we can, and uh, there's so many great singers um, that are pops that use microphones and they have a very wonderful special quality. If you stuck them in a concert hall, you wouldn't, without a mic, you wouldn't hear them at all, but they, but doesn't matter. They have a microphone and they, they can use that to their advantage and the, the quality is something, they don't need to train themselves the way an opera singer would. Same, same with the violins. This brings up a subject that I happen to be thinking a lot about. I interviewed a fellow named, uh, a fellow, <laughs> I interviewed Dr. Mark Katz at the University of North Carolina. And his expertise is the very earliest recording of violin music. Mm-hmm. And I had read where you like vinyl and you like the old records. Mm-hmm. And I guess you used to play them at camp, if I remember <laughs> that. So, and uh, But we had quite a discussion. And his... His insight into that was that often when these, the most famous soloists of his age, of that age, I'm saying not his age, when these, this technology first became available, the, uh, you know, the wax uh, mm-hmm. cylinders, they were appalled by their playing. They felt they were out of tempo. They felt sometimes they weren't on pitch, one thing and another. <laughs> and a lot of people, and he said, if you listen to those recordings now, People will often say, Jesus, they're not that good. So it gets into this idea of how uh, does There's it many t- issues of, of in good. what you just said. Yeah, so exactly. There are many, so we'd have to break them down because I think there are many different phenomena going on there. And there's not, it's, I'm not sure they're all necessarily connected. But, but, but. Well, this, this was 
Well, we could talk about that, you know, whether it might even be the machinery itself, not running uh, exactly at speed. But his idea was, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to this, uh, is that our whole sense of what we consider to be good music, a well-played piece, has been radically changed by the Industrial Revolution and the use of all these technologies, even the concert hall, the development of the concert hall. This idea and recordings where you would hear somebody play a piece. You might have been your whole life only heard that piece once or twice. Mm-hmm. But now you could hear it on your Victrola at home or whatever you had, and you begin to think, that is the piece. That's how it should be played. That is what it is. So if somebody mm-hmm. does something different with it, yeah. uh, it, it began to uh, have a real impact upon people performing an expectation of what they were going to deliver to the audience. Yeah, it's well, this is true. I mean, we've gotten... Uh, when people say, oh, maybe they weren't that good back then when they listened to recording. I mean, we're so used to hearing recordings that have been that have been cut together, sometimes note by note until it's... We're so used to hearing perfection on recordings um, that uh, we've... I, I'm actually amazed when I hear old recordings how good they are because I know that they did them in one take. Uh, and I think... I'm actually amazed because I think... You, very few people today could play on one take and do as well as they did. So I, I have a different reaction, but um, uh, I think we have come to expect this kind of perfection. Perfection, but it's really not what music is is about, you know. And and I, that's why I like live performance. You make a mistake, you move on as a listener. You don't care anymore. Like you you you're not going to go rewind and see if they and hear it again. You're not going to hear the exact same performance the next day and and think oh boy the big mistakes coming up you know because you wouldn't want that on a rec- recording you wouldn't want them you don't like mistakes on a recording because you got to hear them over and over again but in a context of a live performance it just doesn't matter i mean of course you need the technique it has to be you don't want it to be a mess but little little things here and there it's just not what it's a, what it's all about so um and having that power to cut things together now is actually can be a curse for a recording artist, you know, they can, they, they know they have the power to, they stop thinking of the big picture, they start worrying about the minutia, and it, and you're losing the big picture, and sometimes the, um, the performance suffers, and then they're surprised, because they're, they're surprised later when they hear it, their own things, now that, that, that it doesn't quite work, because they were so worried about the little things, and getting this right, and that right, that they forgot about the, when you're telling, it's just like telling a story, you know. Playing music is like telling a story, and you have an overall arc. You know how you want to shape it, but if you're if you're doing that and you're worried about every word, and you start re-recording this word and that word, you've forgotten the arc of the story. So, and then as, as terms of the old guys listening to themselves for the first time, I mean, mm-hmm. they just were not used to that phenomena. We grew up, you and I grew up with this phenomena. We know we can listen to ourselves speak. And I'm sure the first person that heard their own voice was shocked. We all were the first time we hear ourselves. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, we hate the way we sound. Yeah, yeah. It's not that different with with because you have a different perception of what you sound like, um, and uh, you know, first time you look at yourself in a magnifying mirror is not a pretty sight either. You know, um, you think you look a particular way if you look at yourself way up close or. You know, with photos, now that we have photos, you look at photos like, do I really look like that? Oh, no. So, yeah, I think that's a different phenomenon. I think that's that would have happened in any generation if had, you know, when the, the, had they happened upon a new technology like that. Let's listen now to Joshua Bell perform Chopin's Nocturne in C-sharp minor with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields.
I had heard there was a real interesting story about Joshua Bell's violin, his Stradivari. It was called the Gibson, and I asked him if he would tell me about it. The Gibson violin. The fact that it's called a Gibson is a little misleading because people who are not in the uh, don't know what that means in the as a, from a Stradivarius point of view. Um, think, oh, a Gibson, like the Gibson guitars, uh, is nothing to do with that. It just so happens that a man named uh, Gibson uh, used to own my violin in the 19th century. I think I think his name was Alfred Gibson, but I'm not. Um, and so it got nicknamed the Gibson. I call it the Hubermann because Hubermann was the next big artist to have, and he's the most famous person to have owned my instrument. And uh, I call it the Hubermann. And Hubermann was one of the greatest violinists of the of the uh, early part of the 20th century. He and Heifetz and Chrysler, they're from that generation. Um, amazing man who founded the Israel Philharmonic or the Palestine Philharmonic, mm. uh, which was in, in, incredibly important humanitarian uh, project that he did. It's now, his legacy is this amazing orchestra, the Israel Philharmonic, but at the time he saved uh hundreds if not thousands of people from uh, perishing in the Holocaust by fi getting them visas to the the, the uh, what is now Israel um, and forming this orchestra and he got them out uh, and and so there I visited with their you know family members of the people he saved you know to this day there's all thousands of people that are so grateful to to him amazing man but while he was raising money for this new orchestra uh, in 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 uh, Huberman, who was a household name, played a concert at Carnegie Hall in 1936. And during the second half of the concert, he was playing his Guarneri del Gesù, and he left the Strad, the one that I own today, he left it in his dressing room. And, um, and uh, when he returned after the concert, the violin was missing, and, he, and uh, Huberman never saw the violin again. So it's, uh, and for 50 years, no one knew where the... the the famous 1713 Gibson or Huberman Stradivarius was. Uh, usually these things turn up when they're stolen because you can't really sell them. Usually they end up in a pawn shop or something like that. But as it turns out, we discovered 50 years later in 1986, uh, the thief uh, on his deathbed uh, basically confessed that he had stolen it 50 years earlier. And he was a violinist, a young violinist that snuck backstage um, convinced the usher to let him stand backstage and listen to from backstage to his hero, uh, Huberman, which he probably was his hero, but he took his violin and played on it himself for 50 years without telling anyone. In fact, he covered the violin in shoe polish to make it look uh, sort of like an old junky violin because that would keep suspicion away. And he played like uh, and he played. And... He played various things. I think he even played some serious, like uh, you know, in orchestras and gigs around town. So he was he was a so regular was it, classical wasn't player. All smoky bar. He did some of that too. He was one of these guys that did a lot of things. Um, and uh, not sure he was deserving of a Stradivarius, but <laughs> but he did he did a lot of things. And and um, what was his name? His name was Altman. Um, it was his it was his last name. And um, Julian Altman was his name. So um, yeah, then so then uh, eventually he died, and the violin was brought to uh, his wife turned it in to the insurance company. And this to, was on his deathbed. This was basically that's the story. That sort of as he told his wife, "Go look in the in my violin case. There's a secret compartment that holds all this literature about the stolen Huberman violin. He had kept it there." 
um, mm. and she she basically figured out that he had he had taken it. And if, of course, then they showed it to the experts, and they said, "Oh my God, this is the Hubermann Strad." Then they Charles Beer, who eventually sold the violin to me many years after that, uh, he was the one that got his hands on it, and they restored it. Spent nine months restoring the the Hubermann violin. Who did the work? Um, this was at the beer shop. Um, they they painstakingly removed all the grime and and shoe polish, you know. But actually, that it sort of protected the instrument in a way. And underneath was this very vibrant, rich red varnish, original varnish, which they uncovered. And uh, and the violin is one of the most vibrantly colored uh, red violins, um, uh, reddish uh, instruments. Um, and it's just a golden period Stratus. It's one of the, it's one of the, I think one of the greatest instruments. I fell in love with it basically when I saw it at Charles Beer's shop. This in two thousand two, I was stumbled upon in the shop to pick up some strings, and they said, "Here, just try this violin for for a minute because it's on its way to Germany to be shown to a collector." And I tried it, and I started shaking. I said, "This is my violin. Like this is." I'm not putting this down. And I played the very same night at the Royal Albert Hall for 8,000 people uh, playing Bernstein, West Side Story, and the Serenade, which I played just today. I uh, played it that very night, which is unheard of. I mean, nobody wants to play on a new instrument that they've never played on, you know, in an important gig like that at the Albert Hall. But I was so infatuated that I just didn't want to play my other uh, Stradivarius, which I had with a great violin. So, and then from that day on, that's the only violin I played on. When he first asked you to play it, did did you know at that point it was that? Yeah, violin? I knew about the violin. So I knew it had, had a great story. reputation, and okay. it was so I was but very was... curious to to try it. Um, in fact, I'd even actually had seen it and played a couple of notes on it years before with Norbert Breinen of the Amadeus String Quartet. He was the first owner after it was recovered, and I remember thinking this is a special violin. But then, but then when I tried it in my on my own in the in the room by myself, I just started. Uh, they left me alone with it and I started just like my heart started racing I said oh my god this is like I'm going to find a way to acquire this violin it, that was a whole story in itself how I finally found a way to sell my other one and get the money for. but I knew that you know where there's, you know, where there's a will there's a way and uh, and I made it happen well I'll do that part too I'd love to hear that story yeah. your children play? oh my t- three boys play violin, cello and, and, and piano so this violin could stay in your family Maybe, yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it may be my life insurance policy, <laughs> <laughs> which you know, uh, we'll see if someone wants to play it. But I, it's uh, you know, the violin is. Yeah, I mean, I would love to keep it forever in the family, but uh, th- that would be a luxury. You played for this organization while you were here in town. Yes. And uh, this is for the homeless, and yes. they're doing different things. Anything about your thoughts about music and how we can use it in the world? Well, music is just... The pain that's in the world right now. Music is... Well, there's a reason why we have art and music in every culture in the world. It's just part of what it means to be a human, and it it brings us together in ways that nothing else can. It's The cliché is that it's a universal language. I wouldn't quite call it that, because there are also... uh, things that are very local about it you know music you know is very different in one place to another but somehow it can speak it can it can transcend uh uh languages and speak to everyone and uh it's a great diplomatic tool it's a great way to to give a a creative outlet for children i think it's the most important thing you can give a child is music and and um and so so i just think it's especially you know 
But music has always been that way. I wouldn't say t today. This it, people like to say that you know, especially in today's difficult times, there have been always difficult times. In fact, much worse times. And you know, in uh, other generations, you know, Bach uh, wrote the most glorious music after you know he lost many of his children, and and uh, there were wars going on, terrible wars during. During and famine and and disease, you know, when composers like Mozart and Schubert were dying at the age of thirty-one, you know, Schubert, um, and they were writing their best music. So it's not it's not like we're we own the right to like difficult times, uh, but music has always been something that gets us through difficult times, and I think we we really need it today. One of my great respects for your work is that you've you've taken the violin and the music that you play into so many arenas of modern life. So you haven't just kept it in, the, say, classical concert hall venues. You've done film. You've uh, even uh, worked on uh, electronic violins, from what I hear at MIT. Yeah. And well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, adventurous, and I am a modern person. I have technology. I like technology. So, I'm, I, I my feet in the very old world and the new world at the same time. So, where I can find places for them to intersect, I, I, I like to do that. I know you have to go. Yeah, I do. Sorry. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. During his performance with the Oregon Symphony, Joshua Bell performed several pieces by American composer Leonard Bernstein. Here he performs On the Town with the Philharmonia Orchestra in London, conducted by David Zinman.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow Project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I would especially like to thank Jane Kovner and Allison Van Etten for their help arranging my interview with Mr. Bell. It is people like Jane and Allison who, working behind the scenes, make sure that we all have the blessing of great music in our lives. ¶¶